Oh my god, am I sweating through my t-shirt from podcasting so hard? Oh my god. Oh my god, I'm podcasting too hard. You guys, no! Welcome back to the Hornsville Cryptcast. I'm Anna. I'm Doza. And I'm Anthony. And this week we are going to be talking about horror hostesses. Boy, are we. There are some amazing women that have just been swept under the rug for a million years in all aspects of everything forever. But we found some really, really awesome babes in the horror community we want to talk about this week. This was like such a fun deep dive. Because like, okay, naturally, when you talk about horror hosting, you get Elvira, you get Joe Bob Briggs, you get Vampira. You narrow it down to the hostesses, obviously Vampira and Elvira are the biggest names out there. But like so many people have been doing this for so long, but before them, beside them, between them, long after them, this is still happening. But it's just interesting to see how this has all evolved. I guess we should probably start at the beginning. Just get it out of the way, not in a, not in a horrible way. It's inevitable that we're going to be talking about Vampira. As far as I'm aware, she was technically the first the true queen of the the late night horror host is definitely vampira and she has a bonkers story i read two books about her this week i think like i went into the biggest deep dive on vampire because it was like uncovering this big mystery i was like oh wait what what and then i had to go through like several pages to find out different things and even like i've i've got one of her biographies and it didn't mention half the stuff that i found in my separate deep dive particularly all the james dean stuff yeah Um, oh my god they were like tight that's what I was going to say. I'm surprised that there's two books worth of information available out there because all I kept running into was mystery after mystery. Like each story has its own dead end conclusion. Like you could make a vampire anthology about each of the individual stories that make up what we know about her life. But the thread that connects them all is missing. As much as we know about Vampire, which seems to be a lot more than we know about any of the other hostesses that I could find, there's still this really big air of mystery over her life, which is really odd. It's It starts even at the beginning where there's contention over where she even came from, where yeah. her biography says something different than another book about horror hosts in general, which says something different than what she and her, her family has said. And there's contradicting accounts all over the place. And like, I don't care where she came from. I don't care who is correct. It's just amazing that everybody's like, oh, I know something that you don't know. And everybody is trying to one up everybody else about the origins of this woman that became so important and influential in the world of horror. Several of the sources that I used said that she was raised by Finnish parents in uh, Massachusetts. But then there was also one that was like Finnish parents from Chicago parents from this other state than her herself saying I'm from Finland and I thought well I could probably suss this out from finding out about her personal life before she was vampire as to like you know where she worked where she went to school and stuff she went all over the place she was in several different countries <laughs> yeah she boy worked, were we surprised she first started the vampire kind of gimmick in New York working as a burlesque dancer so you can't figure out anything about where she actually grew up or is from 
from any of the information that we have about her. All we know is that it's modest and mysterious. As far as I can tell, which I think is really cool that Vampyra is one of the few horror hostesses that I've found that kind of developed her character before she even knew what she wanted to do with it. So from what I could tell, she worked at a New York burlesque club and she was part of an act called Spooky Scandals and she would start all of her performances by rising out of a coffin and just screaming before she would start her dance. (laughs) I would have fallen in love with her immediately. Right? So she'd obviously had that like spooky interest and character already in mind. And then she went to a Halloween ball. I think it was 1953. And she dressed as Morticia Adams from the comic strip that was in the New Yorker. And that's when she started sort of saying that she was Vampyra while she was dressed basically the same as she is on the show. And she was spotted there by the producer Hunt Stromberg. He was already had his own idea of what he wanted to do like horror show-wise that he wanted to host. So when he saw her at the ball, he was like, can you literally just do that on my show? And that's how the vampire show started so he he saw her and then the the account that i read in the biography of oh i have the name of it um which one do you have vampire dark goddess of horror oh by by pool yeah that one is very interesting i he's her biographer but i have a feeling he doesn't even like her at all that's what i got yeah it sounds like he wanted to just tear her apart a little bit yeah it, it felt very very strange but whatever uh the way that he describes it is that Hunt Stromberg saw her at the party and was like, oh my god, he's perfect, and then never got her name, so had to like hunt her down and were was going to people like in the community, like in the spooky community, like who was that like spooky horror babe? I need to know everything about her, I need her on my show. And then and then like that was that. Like she came in looking all smoking hot with a costume that she made herself and just lived her life. And somebody was like, I'm going to put her on TV. That and, and that was it. She came in hot and went like in and out like that, which is so upsetting. It's kind of like a spooky girl's dream, though. You want to be that girl that walks into the Halloween ball with thousands of other people by the sounds of it and be the one person that's picked out and hunted down because they're like, I need you. Not in a creepy way. Yeah. I, don't do that. <laughs> I, was like, I, th- I think I've seen that movie. <laughs> You know what um, I mean, though. Like, that... like a spooky Cinderella kind of way. Yeah, in a, I'm going to give you money to be that spooky every day. That's the dream. And and she was she was living it. And so from then on, she was on Dig Me Later Vampira. It's, it's an absolute shame because, like, there's barely anything left over from any of these. For local stations, common practice was, like, once you run out of space, you only have so much uh, space you can put your previous recordings on that they would just record over them and sometimes they just get lost or destroyed to the years and i'm grateful for the time that i I live in now being able to look back and all this stuff but i i wish there was there was more to see of like the original show and there's a couple episodes like here and there that you get like snippets of and she is just on it she feels so so genuine she started it just like the walking down the mist-filled corridor walking up to the camera and screaming and then doing puns and being creepy and kooky and altogether ooky that's vampire yeah i mean the thing is like she was doing camp in a way that wasn't in your face and cringy which is 
a talent, especially watching through so many horror hostesses in the last few days. It's a talent to do camp without making me cringe. And she she did it really well. But I think part of that is that she was just Vampira. She'd just lived this character and she almost wasn't putting it on. And she said in interviews before that she wanted Vampira to be the most believable person. She didn't want it to be a gimmick or a character. She just wanted Vampira to be someone that was just an entity, which is yeah, is awesome. I think that's why her character worked so well at the time, especially like kind of pioneering this. Because in the interview that she does in American Scary, which is a great documentary on the horror hosting culture, she talks about how the studio brought her in because they had just purchased a bunch of movies that they didn't really know what to do with. And they were things that like, they weren't going to be things that were already sh- that were shown in theaters. The first broadcast of at-home horror television. Yeah, and stuff that like can't stand on its own legs by like name alone. So they needed a, a face to put on it and something with a gimmick. But even then, uh, because of the time, because it's 1954 or whatever, like vampire didn't get to see a lot of these films before she went in and did her bits about them so she would just riff she would be vampire and it worked because she was believable in who she was she believed she was the character and made you believe that as well so you just got to sit there and kind of hang out with her while you both watched this movie maybe for the first time speaking of just like sitting and hanging out with her That seems to, anytime she wasn't actively hosting, it seems like she was just sitting and hanging out with some of the coolest and most influential people ever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she was really good friends with Elvis Presley. She was always with James Dean, it seemed. She did a little bit more than hang out with somebody else. James Dean, I don't know if you guys know, was like fascinated with death and the macabre. And he was like very uh, spooky pretty boy. So when he saw my Nermi just like out and about at this bar that they would frequent, he was like, that is a person I need to know. She just stands out to the point where like James Dean is picking you out of a crowd. That's amazing. <laughs> and they were just like buddies. And you see her to this, this day. Well, I say this day, like modern times beyond the 50s hanging out with the misfits. You see her with the damned and the screamers. She's recorded EPs and records with some of these bands that wrote songs about her. Like the vampire character and her influence is just like wedged so deep into pop culture. Like today, like genuinely today, people still talk about it. She kind of influenced the whole like psychobilly horror punk scene. I mean, that whole mix of pinup and spooky i don't think would have come around if she hadn't brought that into mainstream culture at the time and also she had direct influence on a lot of things like she went and modeled for uh disney animators when they were doing sleeping beauty and maleficent is literally based on vampire modeling for them while they you're kidding no she went in and she modeled and they drew (laughs) maleficent from looking at vampire She's literally, like, immortalized. And literally is immortal because she's a vampire and she'll never go away. That too. But she gave herself (sighs) the full opportunity to be immortalized. She was always out and about and in the horror community wherever and whenever 
she could be. I keep going back to American Scary, but it's like a pretty localized, for the most part, documentary. There's a lot of local broadcast horror hosts that are mentioned in that. But she's sitting there and she's just living for it and like discussing the careers of these other hosts that have come out because of her. She'd never fell out of touch with horror and with the horror community and watched film grow and evolve and kind of reveled in that as as her life went on. And to be fair, that is the trick to the horror community. We see it in actors that play one iconic part in a horror film. But what keeps them immortal is coming back to conventions, interacting with fans, keeping up appearances in the community so that no one forgets who they are, even if they've played one role. And that's a super smart thing to do to make yourself immortal in any community, but even just outside of the horror community, everyone knows who Vampire is. I did want to come back to her and James Dean because that threw me through a loop. So I don't know if you got this far into the, the deep dive, but... Basically, they kind of had a falling out before James Dean died, even though they'd kind of been really, really close when he sort of rose to fame. He said in an interview, someone asked him if him and Vampire were dating, and he said, I don't date cartoons, and just left it as that. And she took a lot of offense to this, apparently. And she turned around to her friends at a bar, who were also friends of his, and said, James Dean will be dead soon. And... In that next week, he got in a car accident and died. She cursed little bastard. And about a month later or something, she then went to a Halloween ball dressed as a witch. And she got her assistant to dress as a dead James Dean and was going around saying, look what I did. So that's that's like next level spooky and made me kind of question <laughs> like... If she was going around saying James Dean is going to die, then and then he got in a horrible accident. Very bad taste, her doing yeah, that. Yeah, a little like, tacky. Really bad taste. So I'm not I'm not going to let that pass by just because it's vampire. That that was shitty. Have you guys um Have you listened to any of the the music that she recorded? No. I have been bumping. I I made myself a little playlist. I'll share it with you guys. Of uh, a lot of these hosts, punk rock and horror has always gone sort of hand in hand, and. With like the sort of the psychobilly coming into the swing in like the 50s and 60s and then bumping that to the 80s and the punk influences is very, very clearly there. So I've been listening to just the dopest playlist of these horror hosts that come in, record EPs or albums with some of these musicians that are actually like genuinely good songs that like I will listen to my day to day. I will make everybody play at Halloween parties until the day that I die. And I, I'll drop one in, like, right here. I Actually, while, if you're listening to this in the future, there will be a song here by Vampyra and the Satan's, uh, and Satan's cheerleaders, like the movie. <laughs> you should also toss that up on the Instagram. Yeah, for sure. I have a couple up here that uh, I'll, put, I'll put my playlist up. She recorded like a a bunch of stuff like that just for the sake of being her character in every aspect of her life. Because there's there's no money in in, in recording a shitty punk EP in the 60s. Like, what are you talking about? That's awesome. I definitely wish that that sense of community and involvement and just like commitment to the character carried over more as things went forward. Yeah, like not enough people hang like she does or did rather. Can we talk about the Orson Welles thing? How, how she had a baby with Orson Welles. Okay, so this really upset me. As well as the James Dean thing, this probably upset me a bit more. No offense, James Dean. 
So it turns yeah. out that Vampire had a affair with Orson Welles and she got pregnant, had a baby, and Orson Welles basically paid her to keep her mouth shut and give the baby up for adoption, which is what she did. And I, I don't know anything of what, if that kid even knows that they're Vampire and Orson Welles' child, or I don't know what what's happened to them but it's just sad i love awesome worlds oh i did until i received that information mm-hmm. and unfortunately part of our job as as horror researchers means we've come across some bad information about people we love sometimes so awesome worlds has yeah, gone on my my sad list but that's that's the thing like when when you talk about people at the end of the day they they may be putting on a character they may be going all out into this they may be iconic but they're they're still people and they have lives beyond that and light and dark the these are the stories that made them who they are and it's part of who they've become and yeah, we would be remiss if we if we didn't talk about it yeah it's a damn shame uh, i think we as a podcast have a duty to find this child Ho is now, uh, let's see, so in the 40s, that would make them about 160 years old. Is right? that right? <laughs> I can't do math. 160 years from 1940. Uh, um, oh, wait, I think that would make them like 80, wouldn't it? Yes. I think it's crazy that Vampire has had such an influence when, like, when we look at these other horror hosts and horror hostesses, like, Obviously, it it got easier as time went on to broadcast and to reach a wider audience and to make a show more sustainable. I mean, Vampire was doing shows for $75 an episode, which I think is like $750 today. Her show lasted only a handful of years. Not, uh, it was 50 episodes from... Like, not even a year. It was on the air for eight months. But yeah, like, to have that much influence in the, in the span of a year, even better, is insane. Yeah, truly. And it just goes to show what she's got. She had the, the chutzpah, the moxie. Are the, am I using those words correctly? Well, I mean, they, they tried to resurrect the vampire show again in 1981. And Vampire agreed to it at first, but then wasn't really happy about it. And she specifically asked for Lola Valana to take over her role. And the producers shot that down. And she's apparently said in interviews that she was fairly sure it was because she was recommending a black woman at that time. And the producers weren't happy about that, which is, is completely yeah, possible for, for 60s America, to be honest. But how, I mean, how 80s sick America. would that have been? Oh, that would have been, that would have been a so huge good. Step it would have been absolutely huge. We would have been doing half this episode just about that whole thing. Like, if she was involved like more in the horror community, I would give her her own episode. Oh, completely. Because she is just beyond talented as, as a human. So, honey, we're, we're thinking about you. Don't worry. We won't forget <laughs> you. But then one day, it turns out that the vampire just basically came in and they had Cassandra Peterson standing there and they said, this is your replacement. And so... They'd hired Cassandra without speaking to Vampire about it, which is when she was like, oh, but hang on, you've literally dressed her the same as me. And sort of giving her the same gimmick, that wasn't really what we agreed to because Vampire was her own, like she copyrighted Vampire. She was smart. Yeah. I think she spite copyrighted Vampire. I think she did the full copyright after they started the conversation with her. And then it came time like, she saw that they were bringing in somebody to do exactly what she did. Exactly. And obviously she was very upset. She tried to sue them 
and they basically got away with it by saying it's a likeness it's not like replication i think they got away with the rule of 30 percent. if you alter something about 30 percent, it's no longer fully copyrighted it is a caricature or a representation of which is why you could have movies like shrek versus shrunk (laughs) so i don't think it's It's, real but like it's the the difference between (laughs) the difference between likeness and close resemblance like she wasn't saying i am vampira she is almost a a caricature of vampiro and that's where she got away with it I'll give her the benefit of the doubt because originally she had an entirely different design and gimmick that she had come up with where she wanted a sort of parallel Sharon Tate's character from the Fearless Vampire Killers. And it's almost like a like a palette swap version where she's she's very froofy, dressed almost in all white for most of that movie. And the the producers were like, no, that that ain't happening. And so I don't know if this was on the back burner or whatever, but like the Elvira look was definitely plan B from what she had. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love Elvira, but um, Cassandra Peterson could have handled that situation a lot better. A lot of situations, to be fair, she could have uh, (laughs) handled it better. But she actually said when she was asked about taking over from Vampire and her comeback was... She had intentionally deviated from the Adam's mute flat chested creation before her. So bitch move. There's no there's no way there's no nice way of saying this. That was a bitch move because Vampire did not attack Elvira at all, even during the lawsuit she attacked the producers. So for Cassandra then to come back with something as disgusting like as to yeah. attack vampires like not even her aesthetic her actual look and her body very very deep slant in woman empowerment coming from from her which is super weird because both of them really in very different ways i think make a solid stride towards women empowerment i mean you have somebody like vampira who comes in and is like subtly sexy and puts that out there for people to sit and watch with her Uh, Nothing's really overt. She's quippy, but it's not the quips that Elvira comes up with, which are pretty heavy handed on sexuality. Yeah, she's sexy, but she's not horny. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, Which was a big move for the 50s. I mean, you have this woman on television late night who is not afraid to be a little bit provocative. And then comes the 80s, and we've all seen the movies that come out of the 80s. Elvira flips the script. She says, it's okay to be... I'll put it in Doza's terms, uh, horny. It's okay to express your sexuality. It's okay to be a woman. It's okay to be feminine. We come from all these horror movies of the damsel in distress, especially when you're watching the movies that Elvira usually plays alongside, which are like 50s to 70s, where she now is in control of the men who appear on the show. She now is the power force here. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I'm not a big fan of some of, the excessive puns that are just all to do with her boobs all the time because i think that takes away from it is it because they're cringy because they yeah, are they're so cringy i do appreciate the fact that she is in control and she at that time it was a huge deal but we also kind of can't give her all the credits for that in the 80s because we had people like linear quigley who were just paving the way 
for complete empowerment for women's sexuality. Absolutely. And, and so it was a big thing already at the time in the 80s where women were starting to be like, no, we're the fucking final girls. We're in charge. We can kick your ass and we can do it naked if we want. Credit to Elvira for keeping it going. Yeah, she's still cruising today. Yeah, I mean, God, it's like... I can't believe that she looks exactly the same now than when she started. Like, I don't know what skincare she's using, but I need it. Some of these women might actually be the vampires that they're claiming to be. And we're just like, oh, that's such a good gimmick. What a great gimmick. And they're like, yeah, it's a gimmick. Yeah, I love that. Not even trying to hide it, but we're so cynical we're just like yeah yeah, yeah gimmick um, i'm here for the gimmick whereas vampire was very sort of re- reserved in comparison there's like almost no vampire merch where conversely you can't go any into any comic book store and not find an elvira comic book elvira no pun intended busts and like action figures and because she's got multiple movies under her belt multiple series it's it's amazing that she and vampire are always like often talked about in the same sentence but vampira was on the air for not even a year and elvira is still doing stuff today i think that also is a product of the times in which they were producing content though because again elvira in the 80s entertainment was huge there was such access to it we had drive-ins we had tons of movie theaters popping up we were able to replicate and distribute film reels easier so Elvira had the advantage of being able to watch a lot of the films that she was critiquing, being able to work with the production team on what is going to happen during a segment. But also then it came time for things like merchandising, like comic books were heavily in production in the 80s, and you're able to slip a character in really easily. You're able to throw Elvira as like a mini host segment into a comic book here and there. You're able to like kind of screen print her on a t-shirt. So I think that really started because we were able to merchandise much easier at the time. I think that's the thing that's kept her going this long is definitely merchandise over anything else because I can tell you a lot of fans of Elvira that I know have never watched her horror host in their life. They might have watched their mo- her movies, but really they're just after the merchandise. They want her face on everything which you can get but they have never actually watched her as a host yeah she's just she is a character Mm -hmm. and her image is what's kept her around because it's easy to produce and in the 80s is when movie memorabilia started becoming a big collectible thing and people collecting vhs's and things like that do you guys want a weird goth horror rabbit hole that wouldn't exist without elvira yes so cassandra peterson and Paul Rubens were in the Groundlings. The improv troupe. Yep. Yeah. They were in the Groundlings together in the 80s. And the two of them began workshopping characters. Uh, Paul Rubens was doing prop comedy. And Cassandra came up with her Valley Girl persona. And so the two of them would go back and forth workshopping these things. Until they finally created, essentially, Pee Wee Herman and Elvira. Before she was given the name Elvira and the costume. Now... First of all, if you watch the Elvira movies, like Haunted Hills, if you interchanged Cassandra and Paul, you still have the same movie. They're, they basically like kept each other's prop comedy and gimmicks. Like they have a cohesive idea. But if we didn't get 
this duo between Elvira and Pee Wee Herman, we wouldn't have gotten Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which is Tim Burton's first movie, which gives us the entire like Burton Nightmare Before Christmas gothic subgenre that we all grew up in. So what you're saying is that Vampire pretty much made Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, why not? I'm not going to say Tim Burton exists because of Elvira. I'm saying Vampira influences Elvira, who then is friends with Paul Rubens. It all goes back to Vampira at the end of the day. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense because also Tim Burton was heavily influenced by Ed Wood. And obviously... Plan 9 from Outer Space! Thank you! So everything goes back to Vampira. I like that more. Okay, all jokes all right. aside, I do want to visit this <laughs> rabbit hole because... What? Because... Okay, I was having this conversation earlier today. I was looking into a lot of these local broadcast horror hostesses. Yeah, dude. And trying to find information on them, the first thing I keep finding is that they become horror authors right after they're done doing it. So they all have these like anthologies of horror fiction or have written their own, like they've basically created their own horror canon because of how influenced they were by the shows they were producing. It just goes to show the passion that came out of this movement where people saw Elvira and Vampira and got into local broadcast and really just pushed the envelope and made this accessible to everyone and kept it going throughout the entirety of their lives. It's all over the place. I was going down a list of horror hosts by by state in the United States, and I think maybe only four or five states don't have or have never had a local horror host. And I remember growing up and watching some of this stuff on TV, like just like local guys. And my dad still talks about Sven Gulli all the time. <laughs> the last horror host that I remember like mention of when we were growing up was Joe Bob Briggs with Monster Vision. And like I was eight by the time that was canceled. And we don't have Whoops. horror hosts yet. <laughs> you guys have you? We, we have me now. But when I was growing up, I didn't know and what they horror host was. <laughs> Oh, we had, like, the Crypt Keeper, as in, like, Tales in the Crypts. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but your Crypt Keeper was, like, an old white dude, and then we got, like, the grimy corpse guy. No. Well, it's the it's the same. because the, the kind of grimy corpse the, guy. That was later. The original one was Guy in a Robe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, as in the original film, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you guys got that yeah. first. Yeah, that's but true. The, the one from the, the comics has always been the... the grimy the corpse creep. man. Yeah. I love that so many of these hosts have picked the mantle back up and started doing it virtually online and on YouTube. After American Scary, I found Horror Host Graveyard, which pretty much catalogs who the active horror hosts are and in what months and what they're producing. And so I got to see like who produced in 2020 and like some of these people are still active. They're just keeping YouTube channels or personal websites and making sure that the horror host game remains strong and accessible. And I think especially in 2020, where so much of us spent so much time isolated, having a horror host, having a companion to movie watch with is such an awesome thing. Somebody who's going to sit there and like make that banter while you're watching this and like give you a commercial break sort of thing to like go run, get popcorn, whatever. I feel like it really brings well, That's home... why I have you guys. Yeah, but not everybody has us. But they could because we're on Spotify and Instagram and SoundCloud. Yeah, and iTunes. Your own Christopher Lee. Who was was it who gave that advice? There was a horror hostess that said, "Yeah, I love that." So she posted a video last year, her doing her normal horror hostess spiel, and she included a story about how when Peter Cushing's wife died. He was just in like so much turmoil over it and 
he had to shoot a film with Christopher Lee. So Christopher Lee and his family basically just took Peter Cushing in and were like, no, you got this buddy. And Christopher Lee would even stay in Peter Cushing's room to take care of him because he had night terrors. And so Sally was like, everyone needs to go and get a Christopher Lee in their life. And if you haven't got a Christopher Lee in your life, like call these good people. And she had the suicide prevention number and things like that. So it was like, holy shit. And who is this? So this is Sally, the zombie cheerleader. And I found her through Anthony telling me about her after he'd gone down this, this huge rabbit hole of the graveyard. Oh my gosh, she sounds awesome. Wait, I went down such a rabbit hole in Horror Host Graveyard. I ordered Horror Host trading cards, and I really want us to have our own Horror Host trading cards. Done. Easy. (laughs) I'll make up stats. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Sally, she did a brief interview on American Scary. And I mean, as much as I think American Scary is a great documentary for the evolution of horror hosting, they gloss over a lot of the hostesses then i mean sally got her her interview segment but i did so much more of a dive on her and she's fascinating she does a great job when it comes to conveying background information on the movies on the actors on whatever was involved in it and making it an experience and you can tell it's a passion project for her because it looks like she's doing it out of her own home and it looks like she's doing it for the most part by herself but it's really a fun experience She's got the quips. She she has her gimmick as a zombie where everybody watching is fleshies. Yeah, definitely major props to her. I think more credit was deserved there. I must admit, when we were researching for this episode, I kind of got really sad about the fact that it seemed like the reason why people were so interested in seemingly only two horror hostesses in the whole world was just because they thought they were sexy and they didn't really give any real information about the movies and obviously my whole thing is like information should be the sexier part of a hostess than just what she looks like so I was like oh I can't find an empowerment in this and it wasn't until we started researching the lesser known hostesses that I remembered why I wanted to be a horror hostess so much. I didn't even know what a horror hostess was when I was a kid, obviously, because we didn't have them. I only found them when I found Vampire through watching Fan 9, of all things. Well, I watched Edward first, (laughs) and then I watched that. Um, oh wow to figure out what the hell edward was all about because i was like this is about a real director (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so i found out who she was and then i was like oh and then there's elvira and those are the only two that i knew of but i was like i need to do this job i can do this job but i can do it better and little uh 17 year old me was i 17 yeah 2008 um i actually got really cocky and emailed Elvira's manager and said, hey, look, I could do a better job than she's doing. You should hire me. I never heard back. But funny enough, the same year that they produced Finding the Next Elvira, which was a game show between Elvira wannabes to become Elvira for a year, which, disclaimer, I don't think they actually gave the winner no. a year of being Elvira because I cannot find anything on it. Well, maybe like she passed the mantle over and just literally became Elvira. So we never knew. No, she's now a horror author. Yeah. Oh, April Whalen was the winner of the contest and she did a phenomenal job being Elvira, which was the whole point of the contest. She did a phenomenal job doing everything about Elvira from the look to the mannerisms 
well-deserving of that title as the next Elvira, but I can't find anything on her actually resuming the year-long contract being Elvira hosting anything. She's done a lot of like other film work, and now, like Anna said, she's a horror author, which I definitely want to check out having done this rabbit hole. However, during this whole contest of who's going to be the next Elvira, we also discovered Miss Monster, who I have so much respect for because she went into this not even giving a fuck about being the next Elvira. She came in in her blue body paint in her just like a superhero suit kind of thing, her bright red hair, and she auditioned to be Elvira. And she played along for as long as she was. She made it to like the last six contestants. But in an interview, she had said, like, she's more here to just promote horror hostessing. And she even says this in her elimination plea, that she's here to promote horror hosting rather than be the next Elvira. Hell yes. Hell yes. Cool. She's got a fun gimmick. I did a little bit of a dive on her website. It's hard to find. She has a series called Hell on Ice, and that's her hosting. Good for her. It's it's difficult to find it because you can pretty much just buy the DVDs and watch it that way. Good way to support her and doing this. She was active until I think about 2014, but she's got, she kind of takes the play on Elvira always talking about her fantastic melons and the fact that she has two puppets that are cursed and haunted melons as her co-host. Mm. So it's got this like mystery science theater vibe. I was waiting for you to get to the puppets. I was like, there's no way Anthony found this on his own. There must be puppets involved. There sure are. To be fair, there are a lot of horror hostesses that have puppets. It seems to be this thing now. Everybody has to have like a sidekick, whether it be like an animal or a ghoul or a puppet. A lot of them have snakes, which is cool. Some of them have a real one. Some of them have a stuffed snake. I love I love lizards. I love reptiles. I think creatures of the night. I think it's cool having little sidekicks and co-hosts. I love oh. Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful was a. Well, I think she still is active i think i'm Um, pretty sure she's still active let me double check here oh 2015 because of the cool thing oh okay okay so penny dreadful i literally found today so i'm not gonna pretend like i'm a big long-term fan but i am going to be now i think she was probably the most impressive that i found she was a host for new england and she gives this great character without having to be sexualized but still gives this like fun campy presence but she gives you information on the movie. She gives you a whole, like, story to go along with. Like, continuity-wise, she seems to have this whole ongoing story about her character as well as hosting. Which is it's just really interesting. And she just, she just had a really great presence about her. She had these two, like, sidekicks that would come on. And one was a werewolf that didn't seem to really speak. The other guy was just seemed like a guy in a bowler hat. I get it, though. They set up the big continuous story. And that's really what they're there for. Like, Penny's our host for the movie. And her sidekicks, uh, I think the werewolf's name is Guru, which I love. They're there to help set up the, the continuity of her universe. One of the things I love about Penny Dreadful is, first of all, not even to gloss over the title of her character and her show, which is Penny Dreadful's Shilling Shockers, which is just a double play on the idea of the old Penny Dreadful's. And these like serial comics, but she she steps away from the vampire thing. She steps away from the Elvira thing. She is a witch. And in 2016, 
She got picked up as a writer for Masters of the Universe. I think that's the earliest when she started. And she's done show, comic book, etc. But I guess because of her comic book ties, there is also a Penny Dreadful Shilling Shockers graphic novel. It's like six bucks on her Etsy shop. You bet your ass I'm ordering one. And you bet your ass Future Doza will put that link in the description. Hell yeah. There really is like so many cool things about Penny Dreadful. It's like in and out of character. She seems like a kind of person that like I would love to hang out with. And she's been getting awards for like 15 years for for doing this. One of the, one of the things that I feel we don't get representation wise is you two didn't know this but she actually is trans she came out a couple years ago which was because like massachusetts had like uh they were trying to impose a bill preventing transgender rights so she she stood up and said like you know i'm i'm big in the horror community and i'm trans like what are you what are you gonna do about it like i had no idea yeah same it's it's very it's very cool. I'm so certain we've talked about works and seen works that were worked on and had trans people involved that we would never even know. And uh, here, Penny Dreadful is you know stepping up, stepping out, and saying like you know we're here and we're awesome and like very very cool person, very very fun history. I'm getting goosebumps. I want to get her on the show so bad. <laughs> yeah, all of this makes me so happy. But that's what I was saying before. Mm-hmm. I going through this whole sort of dread about doing this episode because I was like it's woman in horror month and I want to be full of like female empowerment for this episode and after researching just vampire and Elvira really I absolutely love both of them but it wasn't giving me that woman in horror month boost that I needed and then finding people like Penny Dreadful like it, it just completely brought it back up in me again like yes this is exactly what we need to be talking about even just in the last five minutes finding out so much more about her it's like this is <laughs> this is this is great this is what we need in the yeah world. these are talented passionate women creating media that we love they've always been doing it they always will be and here we are trying our best to, to shine light on on some that might not have the light shine on them otherwise oh yeah i just want to blast off one quick shining star there's not a, a ton of information about her but I, I thought she was great. Uh, Tarantula Ghoul, if you guys are familiar. Nope. Nope. This is another one of those that are like local hosts where she was Portland based. She did the, the same thing. She more so Vampira than Elvira, but she does like the, the black garb. She has uh, a snake and she's like, she's very macabre. She's also a seasoned actor on top of it. So that comes through in her performance there. And she does such a great job as a host. And then beyond that also is a musician and has recorded a couple really, really awesome bangers. Some of which paved the way for what became Halloween party music in the 60s and 70s. Love with that. her songs King Kong and Graveyard Rock with Tarantula Ghoul and the Gravediggers. I'm going to let you guys listen to that later because these songs, well, they feel like you've heard them a million times because I'm sure they've been on a Halloween playlist here and there. It is Halloween party music. And they're on Spotify. They are? Yep. (laughs) Oh, dude, though, they're so good. She sadly passed away before our time. 
and just involved in the community, involved in music, things beyond her hosting. And that's Susan Waldron as Tarantula Ghoul. That's awesome. Did you, do you guys happen upon uh, Saturday Night Dead? That was a treasure to find. First of all, I don't like Saturday Night Live. Throw that right out there. But like, this hits all my niche markets for what I'm here for. And for Stella to come in as this like fun host and host other horror hosts, like we watched a segment where she had Zachary on, which was awesome because he's a huge in the horror host community but like these other horror hosts and horror figures show up on her show and there are these like fun wacky sketches and she lives in a haunted mansion that is basically haunted peewee's playhouse and that's dope <laughs> yeah it looked like so much fun and to be I, fair just... that's like such a smart gimmick as soon as i saw saturday night dead come out i was like why hasn't that come into my head ever why didn't i come up with that and then hosting other hosts to not only like keep the community strong, but to also offload some of your own responsibility as a host onto someone else <laughs> so you can like have a safety net. That's so smart. But it also it makes for good banter because like they, they've all been doing this for so long and it's that recognition of one another and like kind of boosting each other up, which is awesome. Most of these like came and went and with the no footage, this so little we can say just about what was like written about them you know what's written what footage remains which is so difficult to find we just missed it there was like an episode of vampira for sale like somebody found one and they sold it on ebay last year i'm not sure for how much but i I wish i would love to own that i would love to just be like i own this episode of vampira and the guy that bought it is like I'm not going to post it online, which sure. Yeah. More, more power to you. Whatever, man. That's the kind of thing people get robbed for. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, look, his address. What are you guys doing later? <laughs> I think this is a great time to segue into how hosting has evolved. And I mean, like we have Anna who has evolved into the horror host podcasting route and with our festival. But then, I mean, we even just had in our first season, we had Casey, the homicidal homemaker on here. Casey is probably my favorite of the new generation of horror hostesses. Because even before she was a homicidal homemaker, Casey was in the community doing her woman horror stuff. Before she was homicidal homemaker, she was organizing so many events in California. She did her own horror movie screenings and she did horror themed concerts and she hosted a late night talk show called Friday Night Frights on her local radio station. And then she became the homicidal homemaker and started doing I'm a homicidal homemaker and here's how you make this <laughs> delicious food but make it look really spooky. She would have things that were just generally like spooky Halloween-y themed food and she would have ones that were created out of love for a certain film and eventually got picked up in 2017 by Rumorg and she has a column with them and she's now on Rumorg TV with her own show. I just have so much respect for Casey because she wasn't doing it with the intention of I'm going to become famous. I'm going to become a horror hostess. She was just like, I'm a horror fan and I want to see more of this. And this is what I'm going to do. That's like the woman in horror that we need in the world. They're not doing it for anything other than their love of horror. That's why I make such a big, 
I talk about Cassandra Peterson and Elvira as separate people because they are. Because Elvira is a character that Cassandra Peterson plays. She's not Elvira. She's not a, this spooky horror fan as a person. She's just playing one. We have people like Casey who don't even need a character because they just, they're, they're women in horror that are just doing their thing and it's entertaining. I mean, so Casey I have, even said she's been doing this since the MySpace days. Like Homicidal Homemaker yeah. started as just like her posting her recipes. I but followed even to Casey it, on MySpace. That's where I found <laughs> oh her. God. Like I said in our episode, that's why I was fangirling because I'd literally been following Casey since before she did Homicidal Homemaker. Go back and listen to our episode that we did with Casey uh, back in the beginning, which is oh, back when we were a fledgling uh, podcast. Back when we were a baby like we podcast. Know what we're doing now? Yeah, uh, <laughs> but she's one. so lovely. She's just <laughs> she's such a cool person, and she does as the classic horror hosts did. She creates sets and and has guests and sketches to kind of bookend her her recipe videos. It's an experience. You have that host to guide you through this spooky adventure. As much as like Casey's my favorite of the new sort of generation of horror hostesses in the, the video sort of format, I have some absolute favorite podcast hosts as well. Obviously, Andrea and Alex from Faculty of Horror. Andrea's an amazing person she's the editor of room Org, and she's just the nicest person ever we've both been going through this book the artist's way recently and she's trying to hold me accountable to, to carrying on with it so very much appreciate her <laughs> but the podcast is great just a wealth of knowledge uh lindsay from collection resurrection manny and lindsay do a great job on their podcast and it brings a real light to a lot of movies that you've forgotten about and then you you hear them talk about it and you're like oh i remember that one and it's sort of real traditional horror hosting in a new way they're Um, truly some of my favorite people (laughs) yeah completely oh yeah sarah and rosie from radio girl press they're just the nicest girls in the world but they also have just so much knowledge about horror it's great and last but not least uh yasmin megan and morgan from witch finger podcast yasmin is also a writer for room org and just one of like the raddest chicks in the whole world and morgan most people know her from being in the band kitty and she's just really cool um morgan's like <laughs> one of those one of those girls you're just oh no you're so cool but yeah most people know her from kitty but she also is part of the Witchfinger podcast and is an awesome horror fan my favorite's anna Aww, from the hauntsville crypt cast thanks we'll we'll transfer to to video horror hosts at some point once we're all back together Oh. We will, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll get the Huntsville channel. I'm getting sad. No, it's gonna it's happen. Be hopeful. I'm getting sad. What am I saying? <laughs> I am sad. Now, we run Scared for Your Life, the film festival, every year, but there is a Long Island film festival that predates us in the horror community, and that is Macabre what? Fair. And oh. Macabre Fair, it is an experience. They go all out, they get incredible guests, they've shown some awesome films. They pick cool venues, but all of that was hosted by Elsie Macabre. Unfortunately, a few years ago now, uh, Elsie passed away, but I mean, her legacy of running Macabre Fair on Long Island, and uh, I think they've done it in several other states at this point now, is just, it's legendary. We have people who, like Manny and Lindsay from Collection Resurrection and who have hosted films in our uh, film festival, they rave about it. And it was one of the biggest compliments for them to come to our festival and say it kind of felt like 
that because that was a home for horror and horror hosting on Long Island. Elsie created sketches, shadow plays that would go with, uh, or shadow casts that would go along with this film festival. We have a couple other friends who are in that community who would do their, their like character actors or they build puppets or giant like set pieces that would just make this a whole live action horror hosting experience that you could be right there in the audience of. So I think Elsie definitely deserves a place on this list and some recognition throughout horror hosting more than just Long Island. I know Macabre Fair is carrying on. I know her husband is running it. I think they moved to a different state at this point. I don't know where they're hosting it, though, because obviously 2020 kind of messed up everybody's plans for hosting a film festival. Yeah, I definitely think, like, having recently learned about Elsie definitely belongs on the list not just for horror hostesses but just women in horror in general running a horror like a, a film festival is so hard and we've got a team of people and it's still <laughs> I, I i've been watching film submissions every day for months now and then we've got some more that we need to carry it's it's on, literally an ongoing process and that's just the judging part of it but running it and her doing that out of just passion for horror like complete hands up that that's a legend this is the saddest i've been in a long time <laughs> i think that's a good way then a, a good last mention to be honest that being said, I'm so glad to see that things like this are being carried on and there are so many people who are active horror hosts and horror hostesses and keeping this tradition alive, especially as I mentioned before with things the way that they are right now in 2020 and 2021, where, you know, it's it's important to have that kind of cinematic experience and friend to go along with it when we can't really go to the movies right now or have our own like experiences watching these movies together with our friends so to have people carrying this on through private youtube channels or through their own personal websites and just creating these labors of love and uh, and on horror host graveyard and horrorhost.net uh, it's amazing because you could just kind of slip back into that for a moment and relive this tradition watch some old movies but have a new experience doing it every time this episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast is brought to you by Reanimated Apparel. Check them out at letsreanimate.rip to pick up some spooky shirts, hoodies, undies, you name it. And save 10% by using our code Hauntsville at checkout. That's letsreanimate.rip or at letsreanimate on Instagram. Now back to the episode. So, do you guys want your fear of the day? Ooh. I, yes. I would love it, yeah. Somehow I always forget that we have a fear, and it's always really exciting whenever you say that, because I'm like, oh, I forgot that we had a fear. It's like when every time we get to recommendations and both of you guys go, oh, oh fuck. Man. So your fear of the day is shijophobia. Sure. Shijophobia? Can you spell it, please? S-H-I-J-I-phobia. Is it fear of black wigs? <laughs> trying to think what's relevant to the episode is it relevant to the episode very loosely <laughs> Oof. i always i try and find fears that aren't like direct because there's a lot of phobias that are just like insert ordinary word here phobia and i'll tell you the one that i looked at before i picked this one because they're similar oh um i get my guess is like it's it's like stage fright no shijophobia is the fear of television sets 
So obviously you can't have shigophobia and want to watch your favorite horror hostess. Wow. It's so like the, just like being on a set. I like, so you like, you can't go to a play. I think it might be like the actual like entertainment set that you are viewing things on. Oh, oh like as the, in like the... a television. Yeah. Oh my God. Like a, like a TV. That's horrible. I, I have to go to the cinema. I'm really sad and TV brings me so much comfort. So it just, it, it makes me, but then again, that's the same as people who are scared of spiders. Like spiders bring me so much comfort to see. And I'm very aware that some people have the opposite reaction. So a TV. Oh my God. God. But if I couldn't watch TV, I'd have to read a book. <laughs> like I didn't read two books this week for this episode alone. <laughs> Bro, I wish I could read a book in a week. For our recommendations this time around, we're going to recommend different women in horror that we think everybody should check out, right? Yeah. I mean, we probably have yep. films that we want to recommend, but just not not this. We'll double up next time. But this time, I just thought it was important for us Don't to... Don't make promises we can't keep. We're <laughs> the two that forget that we have to have recommendations. You're going to tell Doza to come up with six movies? I'm holding us accountable. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was really important for us to talk about some important women in horror as well. I'll go. I'll actually recommend this author. I had I had somebody else plan, but this this actually works out. So I've been reading for for pleasure on top of the reading for research because I needed something to like turn my brain back into fun mode. Um, so I've been reading a bunch of stuff by Cynthia or uh, Sina Pelayo. So she's a, a Latina author. She's been doing some really good horror stuff. She has specifically the one that I enjoyed the most that sort of like got me back into being a person again was uh, Into the Forest and All the Way Through, which is a book of poems about true crime. And I know there's some sort of spillover between horror fans and true crime. So she writes horror but if you're looking for like sort of like an entryway into the way she writes into the forest and all the way through is such a good jumping off point. She's very, very talented. I love the way she writes. So that's Sina Pelayo. C-I-N-A-P-E-L-A-Y-O. Definitely going to check her out. I'm kind of glad that we get to do this and break away from movies a little bit because obviously as horror fans, horror is everything to all of us. We incorporate it anywhere that we can. So... I'm going to recommend a musician. I want to recommend Jess O'Lantern. As far as Jess goes, she is a horror hostess on the stage. She refers to herself as the spooky songstress. And I think that is the most perfectly fitting title because most of her songs are a tour through some of her favorite horror movies. And anytime you see her in concert, she takes a moment to kind of set the scene for you, give you a little bit of her background with her experiences with these movies. She's got some incredible original songs as well, but as a horror fan, like that was what drew me to her first. And she totally rocks the horror hostess vibe. She's got the same Franken scars as Marlena Midnight, who is the horror hostess of Midnight Mausoleum. So really it runs all the way through to her. And throughout the course of the pandemic, since performances weren't a thing, she basically created her own horror hostess mini concerts on her Facebook Live, just as a background as a puppeteer. So I know she incorporated a little bit of puppetry here and there, giving like that full horror hostess experience. Plus her she songs awesome. are really cool. I've been slacking. She just got picked up recently by Batcave Records, which is like the quintessential <gasps> horror punk record label. You can find so many oh, amazing- Oh man, I gotta get it on the ground floor here. <laughs> oh shit. There's so many amazing artists on Batcave Records, so Jess is just like the perfect recent addition to that. 
Anna, do you have one? No, I can't think of anyone. No, I. <laughs> you're, you're out of women. <laughs> uh, I, I never run out of women. Yeah, we talked about every woman today. <laughs> I mean, I I talked about a lot of them in our two part special last year, but I do. Okay, I I have so many more women in horror to talk about, but I do want to talk about a woman who's not necessarily of horror, but more of like science fiction. I've I'm just so obsessed with Fia von Harbu, and most people know her as the the writer of Metropolis, uh, the Fritz Lang movie. But from what I have counted, she has at least fifty two screenwriting credits. She directed at least two films, and she's written thirty five novels. As well as this, she was on set, and well, she was behind. She was the Deborah Hill of Fritz Lang. So she was married to Fritz Lang for quite a long time. And during that time, she pretty much worked on the production and the screenwriting for every single one of his films. And as well as that, she would hand cook from scratch a meal and feed all the cast and all the crew while she was there and like take care of everyone. There's so many records of people just saying that like, even if it was a cold day, then she would give them a blanket. If they needed food, then she would give them food and she just sort of took care of everyone. Being that involved in a movie as well as just having human compassion for absolutely every single person, whether they were just a runner or whether they were the main star, just having that respect for everyone who is involved in a film is incredible by itself. But also... Imagine compassion and respect on a film set nowadays. Right? Exactly. That's why it was so shocking. <laughs> no room for that. Um, there's so many things about her. Like, after she divorced Fritz Lang, she had another husband, and he was of Indian descent. And this was during World War Two. So, in order to... And obviously it was frowned upon to be anything that wasn't just pure German and so what she did in order to try and protect her husband and try and protect a lot of people actually she agreed to start making films for the Nazis as their form of entertainment but what she was doing was just trying to keep them distracted while people got saved basically so she basically entertained the Nazis so she could keep loved ones safe which is a damn smart move but she she just did so many wonderful things and just the fact in that day and age being that involved in film and she did not get credit for a lot of it because she was a woman so she was actually unlisted from from credits on films so it's actually impossible to tell how many she worked on which is why I said I found at least 52 that she has screen credit credits for <laughs> so how many more does she did she do just overall she was just incredible and metropolis is one of the greatest films to this day i don't care how put off people get now by being like oh it's a silent movie and it's in black and white it's probably the most compelling silent movie you're ever gonna watch so you may as well just watch it it's pioneered the way for, <laughs> for science fiction in general so go watch it yeah for real go right now because we're about to wrap this sucker up this month for Women in Horror Month, we want to do a special shout out and thank you to our sponsor, Becky Makes Bad Art. Check her out on Instagram. She makes some incredible horror merch. A special shout out to Rebel Flesh for writing our new theme song for us. Thanks, guys. Thinking of you. Hell yeah. Thank you guys for listening to the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anna. I'm Doza. And I'm Anthony. Happy hauntings. We'll see you in hell. <laughs> <laughs>